Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Paul Hynek with us has worked in tech and entertainment, currently a business consultant. He's a former adjunct professor at Pepperdine University here in the Los Angeles area and is presently a consultant for the History Channel's new project, The Blue Book, which they've just renewed again, based on a real project to investigate UFOs from 1952 to 69. Paul is the son, as I've mentioned, of the doctor, the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer who was a skeptic, who worked with the U.S. Air Force investigating UFO cases from 1948 to the end of Project Blue Book. He was in uh, three consecutive projects, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, which was the biggest. Paul's father began his investigation with the United States Air Force as a skeptic for sure, but by the time Blue Book ended, let me tell you, he was convinced some UFO cases posed a real mystery. Paul, I got to tell you, it is a treat to have you on the program. Thank you, George. Happy to be here. And uh, what a fascinating person your father was. I was mesmerized with him when I was younger. I, I just I couldn't get enough information on things that he did. Yeah, he had a really varied career. You know, before this part-time hobby of UFOs sort of took over the latter part of his career, he worked on the proximity fuse in World War II, and in the days before Sputnik, set up 12 observatories around the world and created the first citizen crowd-sourced project to have amateurs man these telescopes around the world so they were the first people to spot Sputnik and to map its trajectory. We're going to talk about his work, the Heineck UFO Report, which you wrote the forward for. How will, let me ask you this, Paul, because this is going to put it in perspective to the questions I'm going to talk with you about tonight. How old are you now? Uh, 57. Okay, so you grew up in that same era when your dad was at the peak of his career. Uh do you remember a lot of the stories? Would he bring them home and talk to you? Were you fascinated by them? Yeah, you know, some of my earliest memories, and, and those of my four siblings as well, are of, like, Chris, Christmas tree ornaments that were UFOs. Um, <laughs> or paintings on the wall. Or you mentioned, you know, bring stories home. He brought people home. You know, Travis Walton and Calvin Parker and Father Gill and many others all had dinner at our house. Wow. I was... Uh... 16, when he came to Michigan, mm-hmm. and that uh, infamous swamp gas. Oh, yes. That, that haunted him for years, didn't it? Yeah, that, that was a kind of a stain because, you know, in the press conference, he made a preface that swamp gas could possibly explain some of what has been seen over that six-day period. But, of course, that kind of nuance got lost. And so this became a, an example of Hynek being pressured by the Air Force to dismiss all of it with a you know a blanket swamp gas explanation. I, I had been told, maybe you know, that uh, some general somewhere was the one who told him to say swamp gas, and he didn't want to say it, but uh, he had to comply. Yeah, and that was, I think, sort of the low point of his tenure. Well, the Robertson panel was another one, but the low point of his, of his tenure with Project Blue Book and by that point, he had really come to realize that the Air Force was not interested in finding the truth, and especially with Project Blue Book. You know, the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron was more designed for rapid deployment to, uh, to crash sites, and Project Blue Book was really more of a PR exercise to tamp down public hysteria, and as they show in the TV show, just to make up answers for everything. 
What was it, Paul, that made your father change his mind from being a skeptic, and he was, to being a believer, and he was? Yeah, you know, I would say more so than the word believer, I would say acceptor. I think a scientist, they will accept the weight of the data. And, you know, people often point to the Socorro case with Lonnie Zamora in 1964 as a sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think it was really the weight of the evidence and the consistent patterns that he saw developing. One of the insights he had was that he was not really studying UFOs. He was studying UFO reports because he didn't have UFOs in some great big Petri dish. So he was studying the reports. And when he started looking at that data, that's how he's able to come up with a classification system of close encounters of the first, second, and third kind to help scientists around the world compare more apples to apples. Yeah, the Lonnie Zamora case, the police officer from Socorro, New Mexico, was an incredible right. case. And that, that, that's the one that really then started changing him, wasn't it? I think that may have been the, the end point. I think he, he had seen numerous cases by, before then, such as Father Gill in Papua New Guinea in 1959 and Barney and Betty Hill in 1961. Uh, they were very compelling. And Father Gill was such a compelling and what he felt credible witness who is calmly taking notes while he's looking at the saucer hovering above the ground with like 500 other witnesses there on the site as well. And that's the one I think that they saw occupants in the windows? Yes, and they waved and they waved back. (laughs) Oh, I love this stuff. It It is fantastic. And when Project Blue Book ended, which was in 1969, at what point did your father start uh, KUFOS in Chicago? Uh, KUFOS, uh, Center for UFO Studies, was started in 1973. Okay, so only about four years later. That's right. And what, what got him to do that? Well, you know, um, James McDonald and others wondered why my father stayed involved with Blue Book long after it was clear that Blue Book was not a scientific exercise, but was a national security exercise. And my father's belief was that if he left, he wouldn't have access to the data, and perhaps even more importantly, the ability to shape what data was collected and how it was collected. There may be a a final stamp saying it's weather balloon, but still that, that information would go in the report, and my father had a great deal of influence as to what information was kept. So he decided that it was better to stay there and be aware of the information and influence the information so that when it was finally released, he could use it in the Center for UFO Studies and other people could use it. And now we see that of the 12,000-odd cases that Project Blue Book officially investigated, all with a mandate to explain away everything, they still couldn't explain over 5% of the cases. Paul, did you ever have that uh, son-to-father sit down and go, Dad, come on now, tell me, what's going on? You know, not, it wasn't really necessary because it was just part of the daily fabric of our conversations. Uh, I, you know, UFOs kind of the family business. We grew up with them, so it was a, a natural thing. You know, my father viewed himself more than a UFO guy as a scientist and an astronomer. So he tried to inculcate in us the scientific method and having an open mind, um, and looking at things in an evidence-based way, and UFOs, by the time I was cognizant, UFOs were just something that were, was accepted in our household. 
So to me, it, it seems strange not to grow up with UFOs as part of everyday conversation. The University of Colorado did a study in 1968 called the Condit Report, in which they basically confirmed Project Blue Book that most of these cases are not real. They, right. they really kind of put down everything. Yeah, and that was sort of a, that was in part instigated by the swamp gas case in Michigan, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. because Gerald Ford was a congressman there, and he got really upset, and he said there needs to be a government committee. So the, the, uh, the Air Force put together the Condon Committee, because military types have a lot of deference to academics, and they can use an academic report as sort of as air cover for a conclusion they want to make. If you actually read the Condon report, the conclusion states, there's nothing to see here, folks, please disperse. But the actual report itself has a lot of compelling evidence for UFOs. So the conclusion of the report itself doesn't jibe with his own report. This is just fascinating. When uh, when your father would tell you the various cases and things as you grew a little older and older, he passed away in 1986, so that probably would have made you how old then? Uh, 24. 24. Well old enough to know all these cases, right? Yes, indeed. And uh, by that point, I'd met many of the people involved. Um, I mentioned Father Gill and, and Calvin Parker, but Travis Walton and many of the other, report, you know, the other people studying the phenomena. And, of course, our dear family friend Jacques Vallée, who was around quite a lot. Oh, that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, with his own theories, too. Yes, and, uh, you know, a lot of his beliefs dovetailed with my father uh, towards the end of their careers or towards the end of my father's career as to, you know, the provenance of UFOs because they had long been convinced that there was a phenomenon and they started turning their attention to where UFOs may come from. When he wrote the book Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was turned into that incredible movie, and I'll always love that movie because I spotted your dad in that crowd with his pipe. That's right. And it was just so cool. It, it, it really was. But what compelled him to do that, write that book? You know, um, he had seen so much of the stuff in Blue Book, and he'd come up with his ideas and a lot of the terminology he used in the book, and he decided that now that he was released from Blue Book, he had the ability to talk about those cases, and he wanted to set uh, sort of a scientific classification and rubric over this really tantalizing and enigmatic field so that scientists could look at it to give sort of cover to other scientists to be able to talk turkey and to compare apples to apples and look at these cases in a way and try to find the emergent patterns that he had already seen. When he was no longer a skeptic, Paul, what did he say to you or the family about what he thought these things were? So one of the things that a scientist does is not really leap to conclusions. You know, one of the, there's a, a saying that's sometimes attributed to Richard Feynman um, that is, I'd rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. So one of the hallmarks of a scientist is that there are some things you just don't know. And so my father felt it was important to keep your mind open when you may be confronted with a new phenomena that may be annoying, it may not comport with the grant you just received or the paper you just had published, but also after you've accepted that there's a phenomenon, don't close your mind too quickly by simply grasping the best available answer, but keep your mind open that maybe the answer isn't yet there. So a scientist, before deciding this is it, will try to rule other things out, I think. 
And in one case, in this case, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is one that he felt didn't seem to explain all of the UFO cases. Perhaps it explains some, because there could be a lot of explanations for UFOs. But for some of the cases, you know, they come, they'd have to come from a long way away, kind of tweak Einstein in the nose. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of very sensitive instruments that can detect the entry and exit of objects in and from our atmosphere. And they don't, we don't seem to have the corresponding reports for those with sightings, plus objects exhibit a lot of comfort with our gravity and our atmosphere. And then they exhibit sort of Cheshire cat-like properties where they'll appear here and then over here, sort of violating our laws of physics. So the extraterrestrial nuts and bolts hypothesis didn't grab him very much, and he and Jacques Vallée started gravitating more towards things like interdimensional possibilities. Fascinating. Things even more exotic. Fasc- yeah, he came up with some fascinating possibilities mm-hmm. as he kept at this for a long time. And... Um, as he was getting older and older, and, and, and uh, our condolences, he passed away of a brain tumor, didn't he? That's right. And one of the things I'd like to say is that he was born in 1910 and died in 1986, as you said, which were the years of Halley's Comet. So he, like Mark Twain, <laughs> he came and went with Halley's Comet. I love And that. I took him to see Halley's Comet right before he died. He was born in Chicago. Is that where you were born, too? That's right. Both of us. That's right. Okay. And I'm, I'm from Detroit. so it, it's Fellow always, Midwesterner. You, you got that right. But, gosh, I will always remember that case. Then when I was 19, three years later after he visited Michigan, I started working for a television station while I was in college, and I kept talking to them about UFOs and UFOs, and I want to do this and that. My first radio interview back in 1971, Paul, was with the late Stanton Friedman. Oh, sure, of course. And what a great game. Stan was with us uh, in Columbus, Ohio, uh, at our live stage show, when he passed away going back home right after the event. Oh, wow. That's something else. I, it, it, so I was, he was my first interview. I was his last. Isn't that oh something? It's, it's, it's just magical the way that happens. Your father was extremely well-respected. Once he got into this, once he had KUFOS going, the Center for UFO Studies, and, and did what he did, the movie itself, Close Encounters, people just saw him as the expert on UFOs, didn't they? Yeah, I think he had built up enough uh, street cred with his with his mainstream astronomical career. Um, and so I think by the point he sort of jumped off into the deep end, he brought a lot of people with him because they said, look, there's a guy that's been studying astrophysics and teaching at Northwestern and Harvard and Ohio State. If this guy is believing us and saying this publicly from the mountaintops, maybe there's something to it. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.